Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen, and there is no Stephen this week, although we do have a uh, top Stephen impersonator, Anusha Kalian and Julia Rampant, our Staggers editor, to join us this week to chat about what else but the Labour leadership contest. First of all, Anoush, a simple question. I actually think a surprising number of people will not have heard Owen Smith speak or know anything about him. Who or what is Owen Smith? Well, Owen Smith has only been an MP for six years, which I think is why most people won't have heard of him. He did have a spot on Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet as a shadow Welsh secretary. And then for Jeremy Corbyn, he shadowed work and pensions for a bit before all of the resignations. Um, but I think the main reason why most people haven't really heard of him is because he positions himself as on the soft left of the party, um, which sort of basically doesn't really mean much in this climate because it means he can be defined by Jeremy Corbyn's supporters as a new Labourite or someone similar to Yvette Cooper or Liz Kendall or Andy Burnham like in the previous leadership campaign uh, who doesn't really have a backbone that's how they'd that's how they'd um, characterize it and then from the other side of the d- debate they can see him as someone who's just sort of pandering to left-wing policies and doesn't really have that many political convictions. Um, He didn't vote for the Iraq war, but he wasn't MP during the time when they were voting for the Iraq war. Um, And he didn't vote for um, intervention in Syria either. So that sort of uh, separates him from uh, Angela Eagle, who was his previous rival before she dropped out. Um, So really, he's trying to define himself um, by trying to tack onto Jeremy Corbyn's politics, but by saying that he's the person who can unite the party. And I don't really believe that that's true because he doesn't inspire that much... um, he doesn't inspire that much inspiration in either side of the Labour Party at the moment. So here's what I see when I look at Owen Smith, and this is really unfair. I was once told a story by a media trainer that when Nick Robinson took over as BBC political editor, he didn't need to wear glasses. But they said, you look really generic. Would you like to wear some glasses? And then you can be like, <laughs> so Andrew Marr is like the one with the wavy hands. And, you know, Andrew Neil is the one who scares people. <laughs> you can be the one with the glasses. And then, so he wore glasses. This is so, I have never been able to, I've never been able to hunt Nick Robinson down to, to uh, say, to find out the veracity of this anecdote. But I, that's what I think of every time I look at Owen Smith. I think, if you didn't have glasses, I wouldn't be able to pick you out of a lineup. And that's not great, is it? 
as no, a leader. No, I think the only, yeah, you're right. He's the only distinctive thing he about him. He could do he... Clark Kent and Superman, basically. Yeah, yeah. If, if Owen Smith yeah. took off his glasses, <laughs> sure? he could pass unnoticed among crowds. <laughs> Are you sure he's not being sponsored for his glasses? Ah, <laughs> maybe he's got a Specsavers sweet royalty deal. But that must be the thing. If, if he was worried about getting abuse, then he can just take off his glasses and he's totally anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, Julia, I want, uh, yeah, what's your imp- impression of, of how, how he's done? Because, so here's the thing, right? So I wrote a piece about Jeremy Corbyn this week in which I said that one of the problems that Jeremy Corbyn had was that he got defined by his enemies really quickly at the start. Uh, you know, that not singing the national anthem, which then led to a whole constellation of other stories that were all banging on the same theme, which is that, you know, he hates Britain. He's not patriotic. He doesn't think there's anything that to be proud of about being British. Actually, Jeremy Corbyn's team have done a really good job of defining Owen Smith. If they'd done a good, as good job of defining Jeremy Corbyn as they have of defi- negatively defining Owen Smith in the first couple of days before he had a chance to define himself, I think they'd be doing a lot better. But do you think anyone knows anything apart from Owen Smith apart from the fact that he worked for Pfizer? There is a great story from Ian Katz when he worked, I think, behind the scenes at Newsnight and they asked him to call the police. as a, He was a journalist at that stage and he called 999. Um, but unfortunately, I haven't seen anything that exciting from him since then. That's someone who gets things done. Went, What's the easiest way that the, the police will definitely pick up and answer my query? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's 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 new politics right there. Um, okay, so what we've had this morning. So within a couple of days after the announcement, Owen Smith announced some policies. Jeremy has hit back in tabloidies with a raft of his own policies announced in a speech this morning in um, Essex, I believe. I'm going to play a really... I really wish I had a jingle. I could... Could we just do... Right? This is a poli- This is a round I like to call Whose Policy Is It Anyway? Okay. So I want you to tell me, is this a Jeremy Corbyn policy or an Owen Smith policy? Electoral reform in a democratic House of Lords. Are we both allowed to guess? Yeah. Although you wrote this piece, so yeah. you, I feel like you've got an unfair advantage. Here. I think that's Owen Smith. Can I do the blooper sound? Yep. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. <laughs> I was thinking it wasn't also Owen Smith, but no, this is a Jeremy Corbyn um, policy about he's now kind of moving towards the idea of additional member systems and not pure PR, which is what John McDonnell wants and he's never signed up to. Okay, the reason why I said that was because Jeremy Corbyn has been historically quite yeah. wary of electoral reform. Yeah, so. yeah. Because he believes... Uh, I'm reading from Julius Peace now, so I don't know why I'm not even letting <laughs> you say this. States' his belief in the importance of an MP constituency link, the loss of which will render UK politics remote. They also, much to the upset of George Monbiot, ruled out not contesting um, Brighton against Caroline Lucas of the Greens, right? So this idea that lots of people are cooking up to say, hey, it doesn't really matter if Labour only gets 28% in the polls, because what about a progressive alliance? Although, hey, what use of progressive alliance to a party with one MP is to you, I, I don't really know. Yeah, so I think that reluctance um, about entertaining the idea of a progressive alliance on Jeremy Corbyn's part really does separate him from quite a few of his supporters who they see Jeremy Corbyn as a chance to tear up the whole system and, and, and have, a, have an alliance of different people representing them who just are defined as people who aren't Tories. Yeah, well, to me, the only workable progressive alliance would be one with the SNP, but mm. I see absolutely nothing in it for the SNP at all uh, you know the idea of being the sort of the Lib Dems to Labour's Conservatives being the junior partner in some sort of power sharing deal being held responsible for a load of policies that you sort you know that you kind of can't really defend and also it's not like what does it what what what's the SNP want? Like you know, they just they've got pretty much every seat in Scotland. There's not a lot you can really kind of offer them apart from independence, which is kind of you know their 
it's kind of the thing. It's interesting because they actually started in coalitions in Scotland. And I remember there was one moment where the one, I think it was one green MSP, Robin Harper, managed to stop their whole budget because he objected to one tiny part. And you forget that the Greens were in coalition of some kind anyway with them. Yeah, I just, the Tories. that's the really funny thing, isn't it? You forget that the whole idea between, behind the Scottish Parliament was the idea that it was supposed to not deliver majorities. <laughs> <laughs> How we laughed. Okay, uh, repealing the Trade Union Act. Owen Smith. It was Owen Smith, but also, and let's face it, probably Jeremy Corbyn yeah, as well. I expect so. Uh, reinstate the 50p rate of income tax. That's Owen Smith. Uh, yes, it is. Well done. Wooing. <laughs> That's I have number been doing one. my job in the past two weeks just to but that, but that does, listeners. That does lead me on to a, a, an interesting point, which is the idea that actually Owen Smith has proposed more concrete socialist policies, right, than actually than Jeremy Corbyn. So they've both got a list of kind of interesting ideas about building lots of houses and uh, and infrastructure spending and all these kind of things. But Owen Smith is the one who's saying, oh, by the way, you're going to have to pay for this. Mm. Um, I think that's what was really fascinating. And that's what's always slightly fascinated me about John McDonald's approach has been always that we're going to spend more money, but it's not going to come out of your workers' pockets, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, that's really different. I mean, the, the 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 funding for it was supposed to, for all the things that Jeremy Corbyn promised this morning, which was a lot of things, is supposed to be tax avoidance and growing the economy. Mm-hmm. And unless tax, unless people have been avoiding trillions in tax, and that's something that we can recover... Or the economy grows by about 300, 400%. It seems quite difficult to make that stack up. Do you think that matters though? I mean, I think it does because I, I used to be a financial journalist and in that time I met a lot of people who worked in the tax industry. And um, when you have lots and lots of elite university graduates who spend their entire day working out ways for people to not pay tax, um, I think it's highly unlikely that you can massively increase your ability to get that tax back unless you're working on an international level and actually if you look at how you get tax back that's what's been happening so unless he can somehow broker a lot of international deals in his first years as a prime minister i don't really see that being an effective strategy well i i actually don't agree that it really matters politically that jeremy corbyn obviously hasn't costed his policies because if you're going to promise all these dreamy left-wing policies like um a million council houses and free university education half for a million council houses half a million sorry it's not quite crazy no. here <laughs> that's for the next leadership election <laughs> yeah. um but yeah I, I just think you know why would you want to give with one hand and take away with the other when all the things you're giving with one hand are pretty much <laughs> impossible anyway people will only want to sort of hear what they want to hear so and also the mistake that owen smith is making is that he's offering Jeremy Corbyn light. I mean, why would that win over any Jeremy Corbyn supporters? Well, this was my theory yesterday, is that the problem with the centre-left is you can't portray centre-left politics as the kind of Coke Zero to the proper Coke of full-blooded socialism, right? You can't say, well, actually, I, I don't believe in borders. We should let every immigrant in. But actually, people won't sign up to that, so we can't do that. Or, you know, I really believe in um, hugely um, expansive disability benefit system, but people won't agree with that, so we can't have that. You've got to make the argument on its own terms. You know, you've got to say, well, I want to have an immigration system that, yeah, is not complete free-for-all, but is fair to people and treats them with respect and acknowledges their contribution. You can't constantly say, well, of course, we'd all like X, but you can't have it. Exactly. And in a way, this is where Jeremy Corbyn is... um 
a far more successful politician than anyone like Owen Smith in that he paints himself as a man with principles. So he is in principle, you know, in favour of immigration and asylum seekers' rights. And so he would never have um, said similar things to what John McDonnell was saying post-Brexit about free movement and things like that because he is ideologically wedded to these ideas. Yeah, I, I just think that's the I just think that's the problem for that the centre left is is not is is not painting itself as a sort of paler shade of red than mm. than what people would want, and they have to kind of and particularly to say that you have to compromise, and then people say, well, we did that under Ed Miliband, and we still didn't win, so why sh- why should we? Um, how what's your impression, Julia, of how the race is going this time? It feels very different to last year, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean. I mean, the impression that you get a lot of the time is how people react to stories. And given that the internet seems to be overwhelmingly Corbynite in terms of... (laughs) um, The internet has a well-known pro-Corbyn bias. Owen Smith is failing terribly. But I think we might see a slightly different dynamic in the debates that are coming up because I was writing just an informational story about this and it turns out it's actually very hard to get into the Cardiff debate anyway because you have to be a Labour member and also selected through a ballot. So I think you might see a slightly more sympathetic audience to... um, the Labour Party as opposed to just the Corbyn movement. I think that's a really interesting shift. And I, I you know, we have to, we only, obviously the only person I had to make predictions around here is, is Stephen due to his so far pretty good record. But my feeling is that the membership vote for Corbyn will be a lot softer this time. Or or maybe it won't because there'll be new pe- new joiners members, right? But my feeling is that among people who are long-term Labour Party members who didn't leave the party over Iraq but still uh, voted Corbyn last time, that that support is, is softening. I think the question is whether or not new members join the party and whether or not the, the, the £25 supporters will be um, will be pro-Corbyn. I mean, my, my instinct is that they kind of will be because actually I don't think... I think the idea that Corbyn's support comes from people who can't spare £25 is unfortunately a, a bit of a self-serving myth, right? I think most people who participate in party leadership elections are are middle class. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, I, I just I just feel a bit, and he hasn't got the same exciting narrative as last time. It isn't the kind of you know lone wanderer come from nowhere to smash the system. It's the sort of you know the embattled but principled man of honour who is defending him, himself against a, a challenger, and it's that's that's kind of not. It's not quite as alluring in some ways, to I think, to some people. Although I have to say I have been fascinated by some of the reports that we've had and some of the pictures I've seen of the um, rallies around the country. And I think it is worth pointing out that it isn't... I went to the Momentum one in London on the day of the... Uh, well, the week when they were um, discussing the coup. Um, but there are other ones happening all over the country. And again, it is inner city a lot of the time but it, it definitely isn't just a London thing No, I think there were 5,000 people in Liverpool um, there have been other big, uh, I saw a, a picture of him surrounded, there was beautiful lighting like a sort of medieval <laughs> theatre of, of him on a soapbox in Cambridge uh, although I have to say I haven't yet seen a massive crowd somewhere where I've gone, oh that's really surprised me, you know, I haven't seen one in a Nuneaton or somewhere in I mean not that he would go to rural Norfolk anyway why would you <laughs> or Cornwall say or something like that I, I guess I'm I'm not entirely surprised that Manchester Liverpool London Brighton Bristol those kind of places mm. you can easily get 5,000 mm-hmm. people to turn out I mean I, I I think it's a really difficult one isn't it because you have to not dismiss it I think it's it's it it definitely shows he does have charisma he does say things that people like but also not overstate it as a kind of what over interpret it to say 5,000 people in a hall means 
actually there's a huge groundswell of support for for his policies in the country at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I suppose there's little point in trying to extrapolate what that means about the country at large because this is a leadership contest. So there would be little point in him going at the moment to marginal seats or places where we would be surprised if he drew a crowd because that's not really his job at the moment. And I think that's what Owen Smith is finding finding quite difficult because I think he'd find it easier if he had to appeal to the country at large, whereas he's having to... Uh, think about each and every policy that he announces in terms of the Labour selectorate rather than the electorate. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much both for um, for taking part in my last minute fun game, a fun game that you'll be able to play at home yourselves <laughs> by going on the New Statesman website and looking at where we've um, we've run through all the policies. Um, but for now, thanks very much, Julia and Anoush. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And next up, let's talk about housing. We have got, I'm going to call you Mr. Housing, John Elledge, uh, who is so... Lord Housing, please. <laughs> Give me a peerage, at least. Yeah, Rear Admiral Housing. Um, so um, <laughs> you basically have, have you've become like a sort of human meme um, by saying basically that the only thing we need to do to solve the housing crisis is to build more bloody houses. And actually, weirdly, like people have started, people have started sort of saying this off their own bat without even knowing it came from you, right? This is the ultimate. Um, yeah, kind of it's, I've managed accolade. to add something to the political lexicon. There's now T-shirts you can buy with "Build More Bloody Houses" on it. <laughs> the the other thing I've managed to get into the political lexicon is that you can no longer mention Liam Fox on Twitter without someone telling you he's disgraced, which has obviously had that's obviously really held him back in career terms. I was going to say, isn't he like undisgraced now, or like at least yeah. disgraced former former minister? So I think this story tells you something about the likelihood that my meme is going to end in, in this building a lot more houses but nonetheless well, as we looked at in the last uh, section of this podcast um uh, jeremy corbyn wants to build a house on on everyone i mean literally on on your existing house jeremy <laughs> yeah. corbyn would build another house um i mean he's not the first politi- uh, party leader to kind of start talking about how housing is important and how we need to build you know not just a few houses but lots and lots of houses and start quoting these big numbers the thing you have to look at whenever someone does this, though, is what have they said about land? What have they told us about where they're going to build these houses? Because the reason the market has not stepped up to the plate is because there just isn't anywhere to put these places. We've got like our existing cities are actually pretty full. The bits that aren't full in any, any anywhere in the sort of boom town that doesn't already have stuff on it, like in, in London, somewhere like Barking Riverside, there will generally be a reason why the market's never developed that. What's the is, reason in Barking Riverside? Is it built on a, like a Native American burial ground no, or a toxic not, waste dump? Not or? far. I mean, you actually, toxic waste dump, it is literally. Oh, okay. It's contaminated. <laughs> I can see why people wouldn't want to live yeah, there. That makes it's contaminated sense. ex-industrial land. There's no transport links. It's like a mile from the nearest station. It's also a floodplain. Um, between those things, it means that, you know, it's not that private house builders couldn't build there, but the prices they would have to, to charge to recoup the costs of making it plausible for people to live there means they're just never going to do it. So you need government investment. Um, but the big thing that stops us is things like the green belt. There's just, there are reasons we don't let people build on, on a lot of the empty space that does exist in and around our cities. Unless Jeremy Corbyn or whoever else you want to look at is coming out of a policy to address that problem and just say, okay, 
we are going to build a lot more and here is where we are going to do it. It's all just hot air. It's not actually going to happen. But people love the Green Belt, don't they? With a, with a, I think, a, a fervour that implies that they've never seen what the Green Belt actually involves. I think they think rolling verdant bluebell woods. People do like, love the Green Belt, but people also voted pastures. for Brexit. People are terrible. <laughs> they you buy Coldplay records and they voted for the Nazis. Yeah. Um, Julia, one of the things that you've been um, writing about this week for us about when we talk about housing is we tend to look at housing about, oh no, how terrible that people won't ever own their own home. And actually drawing out the fact that there's no problem really with a, a much more rent-based society if you don't penalise people for renting, right? If that isn't a kind of just an, an, an un, uh, a difficult situation to find yourself in. What are the problems that renters currently face that we don't really talk about enough? Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed that Owen Smith hasn't even mentioned renters in his 20 policies. But um, so, for example, in England, letting agent fees is a big issue. Um, so these can be hundreds of pounds, 300, 400 pounds sometimes, completely arbitrary. And I remember um, interviewing someone once who was um, finding that their deposit to just get another rented flat was being diminished by these letting agent fees because... Um, they were being forced to move and, and it was eroding that pot of savings. Um, there's also the fact that, and I should say they've been outlawed in Scotland. So in Scotland, you can actually, they say it might have been added to the rent, but at least you can compare the rent and know straight up what you're paying. Um, another thing is the fact that uh, landlords can choose to evict someone with, I think it's a month's notice. Um, so it's very unstable in terms of planning your future. And another very effective way of getting rid of people is simply hiking the rent when it comes around to the contract renewal. Um, so one of I think one of the main reasons now for homelessness is just that people get to the end of the contract, they look around and think I can't afford anything in this local area. One of the things I think is I think we can slightly overplay the kind of MPs are so out of touch because you know they do the best ones go and do constituency services they do hear these problems brought to them but there are I would suggest very few MPs who are renters. Um, you know, at least you yeah. know mo- most of them own one home, if not two. I always think that was. We, I think John, you and I had this conversation when we saw Black- Mary Black coming in, going, "Wow, actually, do you think she probably doesn't own her own house? It might be the first well, time there's for ages." Ruth Davidson doesn't. Um, yeah, th- and I, I asked her about this, and she said, uh, "Well, you should ask Kezia Dugdale as well." And it's true that there's a younger generation now of people who are in the same situation as the growing. Di- demographic of renters so that's the scottish mm. labor leader and the scottish tory leader both, both yeah men. i didn't check with kezia dugdale but i'm guessing that that was also yeah. the case from... Pe- people from the campaign group generation rent have told me that they've had many conversations with labor mps where they're like yeah but you know in a few years time all these guys will just buy their own home won't they so there's no point bending over backwards to help them and alienating existing voters because they're going to vote for us now anyway and in a few years time they'll be on the other side of the fence and they will there just isn't that understanding that the world has changed. And actually, there are probably quite a lot of people in the sort of, you know, the under 30 generation who never will own their own home at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and actually, the other thing is that there are, I think it's 24% of MPs. I don't know if they've done, they've updated it since last year's election. But um, a, certainly a big chunk of, uh, of, of MPs are landlords. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about a third of them. Is it? Yeah. Is it more than that? It's it's a significant chunk, and I don't I don't think this means that they're all sort of sat there rubbing their hands together with glee at being able to rip tenants off. But it is human nature. You will be more able to understand people when you're in the same situation. So you do get there was that bill that failed to go through last year, which just said something like you know rented homes should be fit for human habitation and there were mp landlords like philip davis standing up and making speeches about how this was a terrible imposition on landlords isn't he mr international men's day it doesn't get enough oh yeah he's also the guy who um 
once said that he didn't see what the problem was with blackface. So he, there are many things about Philip Davison. It's a suite of terrible opinions. If you think yeah. about it, Ed Miliband's proposals were actually very moderate. I mean, it was a three-year tenancy. And the key thing that I thought was interesting is that you could arrange within those three years to only have your rent go up by a certain amount. So it wasn't, it wasn't like some kind of rent cap that you're never going to ever be able to charge tenants more again. And yet it was described as such, and there were landlord blogs railing about it. Um, landlords hate tenants. If you ever look at those blogs, they really just hate, think the people who they're taking money from every month are just the scum of the earth. It's awful. But that's. I also think it's one of those ones where I'm just... <sighs> I'm not entirely signed up to the idea that it's such a brilliant social good that people should be landlords, that we need to do loads and loads of stuff to encourage loads of people to have a have a crack at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things that, you know, it, like you say, John, it's, it's human nature. And actually, it's one of the, you know, a good stable way to make money if you've got some capital rather than leaving it in a bank with interest rates being so low is to put it into a property well, and then get a, a, a rental is, yield on it. This is precisely why it's quite difficult to address now because there was a pensions crisis in the 90s. A lot of people of uh, our parents' generation the private pension schemes had collapsed, but they bought property. And so this is what's going to fund them through their retirement. If we could halve house prices tomorrow, we would instantly create a pensions crisis, which someone's going to have to... And nobody wants to do that. So it's not just that we yeah, need to they, solve the housing vote. crisis. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's worth mentioning we, as well that until recently, landlords, or in fact, some of, there's still some cases, I think, where they can still um, claim tax deductions um, but they could um, claim any kind of repairs or things like that against tax. And someone told me that within the industry that that's one of the concerns for the future is that suddenly you're not going to be able to reduce your apparent income by bringing in all these extra tax deductions. Which, yeah, which makes, uh, I think it was, a, it was a very tax efficient way to, to have a, an, an income for a really long time. And I don't begrudge anybody who, who took that up at all. And so I don't begrudge anybody who bought their house under um, right to buy although I think a third of those houses have now ended up being buy to let properties you know they've ended up being being let out which was obviously not the original intention of the scheme yeah they're, they're still in the rented market it's just not controlled and state owned anymore it's just been a massive loss to the taxpayer so well done there um can we just mention that when we talk about this i think people go oh you're living in london um well, i mean people say that about pretty much anything that you say these days um but they say that when they write about the tube helen these people complain about anything <laughs> we don't all live in london oh shut up which, yeah, read was, about the Bakerloo line, damn it. Um, which I always find funny because it's like nine, well, yeah, but like nine million people do. This is not some kind of, you know, it's like when you write about women's issues and people go like, oh, I'm writing about women's issues. And you're like, that's half of people. I mean, you know, it's not really illegal. But this is not just a London problem, is it, according to the Resolution Foundation? No, no. The, the reason we're all banging on about this again this week is the Resolution Foundation put out a report. They've got updated figures on, on how home ownership rates have changed in different parts of the country. And, you know, I've been banging on about this for a long time, and there has always been a voice at the back of my head saying, well, you are doing this from a London perspective. It's because so many people you know can't get on the housing ladder. But elsewhere, they pro- this Resolution Foundation report showed that's complete and utter nonsense. And it is a national problem. Um, other places uh, where, where home ownership rates have fallen by more than 10% include the West Midlands, West Yorkshire. The biggest one of all is Greater Manchester, where it's fallen by 15% since it peaked in 2003. Uh, sorry, 15 percentage points, rather, I should mm. say. Um, which is, you know, it used to be basically three quarters of people owned their own home in Greater Manchester, and now it's down to not that much over half. And that is enormous, and it's happened in half a generation. Um, so, yeah, we are, we now are, we, we pride ourselves on being a nation of homeowners. We are now less a nation of homeowners than France is, which, you know, in this... Cita law. Yeah, in this, in this era of national pride and 
Daniel Hannan banging on about that bloody passport colour. Yeah, you'd think they'd be more annoyed by this, you're but they're not. Only sophisticated people care about passports. Did you see him use that as a, as a slur, as like a, like a code word dog whistle for like metropolitan liberal lefty? Yeah, I, all, all these sophisticates talking about like ye honest yeoman is currently going. I like I want my passport to be, if anything, bigger, huge. I want it to be. He really reminds me of the kid I went to school with who got bullied, and people would like drop his copy of Anne Rand down the toilet and stuff like that. I just think that's. You're old enough that he could be that kid. I mean, I'm I not think that. <laughs> <laughs> if he was just a couple yeah. of years above you, I think he's surprisingly young. He's just got, he's, he's just, he's, he's had a hard life in the European he's still, Parliament. He's still significantly older than yeah, I am, as old as I am. <laughs> I did encounter someone before the referendum who every day was chalking out Daniel Hanan's book. He was a um, homeless guy from Scotland who'd moved to London, written down Daniel Hanan's book in a small text that he kept in his pocket and then he wrote not it. as a punishment by, <laughs> by choice by choice right. every day because um, he's a devout follower of Daniel Hanan he's just so this might be one of those things that gets cut in the edit but he's just so weird I just don't quite understand how someone that odd he's, he's oddball I want to, I want people to start he's really polite in real life and this is the I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's a lovely man but he has really weird views and he doesn't realise they're. Really, he's the sort of man who would have Magna Carta pyjamas and he doesn't know that this is an odd position. I'm just trying to think whether or not there's any great foundational text of United Kingdom history that I, you could have as pajamas without that being weird. Sorry, that probably wasn't where you were intending well, to go. Well, no, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm like a history bore. But what about I William have... Shakespeare's signature? Would you have that as pajamas? I bet somebody does. What well, about the um, co- Scottish Covenant is wrote in blood? That's quite an aggressive pair of pyjamas. <laughs> I, I like bet that. somebody has made money selling the 45% pyjamas, right? I mean, that's got to be a thing. If you only get like half of it. <laughs> get one one leg. Um, I think that's probably a really good signal. Can I, before before we go, can I, can, I, can I point out that I have a podcast which you stopped us from using, promoting before because you found the, the trailer we made so depressing. I'm just saying that Barbara sounded like it was a hostage situation, but yeah. that's fine. I mean, Stephanie it kind of was. Yeah. Stephanie does it now. And Steph- Stephanie Boland's doing it now, and she's, she's very cheerful. She's far more cheerful than me. So, yeah, listen, anything, listen to my podcast. The please. seriously podcast music is too chipper, so it was quite a good yin yang situation. That banjo they've got on that I just think oh give it a rest but anyway so you you are the yeah Yeah. we had someone from suede on this week which I think is really cool but probably doesn't actually you know I'm sure our podcast readers do appreciate it wasn't Brett Anderson there was it no it was uh, Neil Codling he was the keyboard player but your idea of of getting people from Britpop bands to talk about urbanism is a a fine one and I look forward to Louise Wenner coming to talk to you about the tube network we should do that Stephanie just has way cooler friends than me Richard Ashcroft's probably got a lot of thoughts about the shard um, yeah, but so yes, you, please everybody listen to John's podcast, which is excellent, and read his site, City Metric, if, if you don't already, which I'm sure you do. Uh, and thank you, Julie, for coming back to chat to us about rent. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tape. 
And now welcome to a section we call You Ask Us, where you ask us. Now, we did actually have someone this week asking us to talk more about policies and less about personalities. So, ha, they have been hopefully fully vindicated by our first section. But Julia, um, I had another question too, which is, do we think that Article 50 will ever be triggered? Triggered? Triggled? <laughs> like a triple. Um, and if so, can it be reversed? Uh, can you kind of, can you pull out of going, actually, I've changed my mind with Article 50? Now, my answer to the second one is quite simple, which is no, it's a one process you know you can't go ah psych I had my fingers crossed behind my back um but in terms of whether or not that's the way that we end up going out of the European Union it's very strange isn't it because all because you have this total period of intense volatility at the end of June and then it's now it's like everyone's sort of forgotten that Brexit's going to happen it's just sort of this thing that yeah we're going to do get around to eventually yeah it reminds me of um someone said to me it's like we're at the top of a roller coaster and we don't quite know it's going for the jump yet um but <laughs> that sounds like a pretty dodgy rolling case <laughs> you know whether or not it's gonna go on but yeah i know what you mean it's it it i guess and the markets reflect that as well and there was that incredible volatility and fall in the pound immediately afterwards and then now it seems like everyone's proceeding on the assumption that it will be a much softer brexit and actually most things will end up being sort of sewn back together again well i think one of the reasons is that a lot of data is two or three months behind so actually most of the data that's come out so far has been like uh, the market PMI um, indices which is like um, construction and stuff like that but the actual data on jobs and stuff like that is still coming out for June so the express can still run headlines saying everything's great and put far down and it's June. But the Bank of England news that we had, so for the first time in how many, however many, it feels like... More than five years. Yeah, years and years and years. I mean, Alex Hearn, who was lately here used to do um, a thing every time they kept the base rate at 0.5 that would just be like an amazing graph of, of where the base rate had gone and it was just a line that just kept getting longer. Now the line has a little dip at the bottom. It's gone down to 0.25. They've also announced quite a bit of um, stimulus kind of stuff, essentially, haven't they? Yeah, and so when I started in financial journalism, there was this huge speculation that um, the Bank of England was going to raise rates and that was still going on when I left it. So that's how much the economy has shifted that they're actually cutting it and they've also increased it um uh basically um the asset purchase behind quantitative easing so it's kind of like the stuff that they were doing in 2009 but just um with extra bells on but do the how um in in the statement that, w- that went alongside the announcement about interest rates how bearish did they seem how worried does it look like the bank is about the effect of brexit on the economy I think they're keeping their cards close to their chest because they don't, if they say anything that's going to be too alarmist, people react to that as well. Um, so it's, there was, uh, someone managed to put Mark Carney on the spot with this question about, um, you know, when you were forecasting a terrible things happening before Brexit, did you include the idea of a stimulus package in that? And uh, he didn't really want to say either way. I think it still depends, like you say, on what happens with Brexit. And um, it's very, that uncertainty in itself is bad but then if if they did come up with a package that worked then i think markets would react much more favorably well we'll keep i'm really happy now we have somebody with a background in financial journalism not to impugn mine or stephen's um, mathematical abilities but they are fairly basic so um we might lure you back on to talk about um things uh, financial in the future You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. 
Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.